This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is Andy, your show editor and mixer. On this episode, Mike and Josh got the chance to talk with Gary Devonar, CEO of ReAlpha, a fintech company whose mission is democratizing the real estate market. During their conversation, Gary spoke about his desire to become a trader early in his career, but a friend actually gave him a piece of advice that ultimately pushed his career in a different direction. So I was in Montgomery Securities, right? I was on the trading floor all the time. We are uh, in San Francisco, 25, 26 kind of. I wanted to be a trader. But you know, like one of the trader friends of mine, now you know, he's the CEO of a large investment bank in uh, Bay Area. He advised me, he said, Giri, you know technology well, don't bother about coming to finance, stick to tech. That was such a great advice and then I have remained in tech for a long time since then. Next, he talked about the power of learning from business failures and how an investment from Lehman Brothers taught him some very valuable things. So we failed not because we wanted to fail, right? Mm -hmm. The failure happened in 2007, 2008 when Lehman Brothers collapsed. Our investor for that project was Lehman Brothers. They were about to put 300 million in equity and 900 million in debt. We were five weeks away from getting that money. And then, you know, when yeah. they collapsed, we became a collateral damage. And last, he offers some insight into what he's learned about the entrepreneurial journey and how it's always changing. In the entrepreneurial journey, one thing that I've learned is you cannot possibly put, you know, all the details of a, a roadmap. Building an, a startup is like, you know, creating a map. There is no map, you know, like you'll have to figure out yourself, right? Even in, when you're doing second time or third time, every time products would have changed markets would have changed, customers, you know, literally everything changes every single day. So there is no map. There are so many great takeaways from this episode. We hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike. We got me and Josh in the booth today. Josh, how you doing? Good, dude. Uh, it's almost Christmas time. Yeah, and, we're closing um, in. Weather in Ohio is extra cold as as expected, except for yesterday when it was 65 degrees right. or whatever that was. So It's cold and then it's warm and then it's cold and then it's colder and then eventually it'll get warm again and as then we'll as, have... As long as we get snow on Christmas. Right. That's all I'm going for. Well, you know, yeah, I will not be seeing any snow on Christmas. I'll be in Palm Desert oh enjoying the God. sun. And you're from San Diego. Can we just get to the yeah, interview? Yeah, okay, already? there we go. Now we can get to the interview. <laughs> we've gotten everything we need out in the open. So uh, today on the show, we've got Gary Devonor and Gary is the CEO of ReAlpha, a fintech company with the mission of democratizing real estate. Their AI finds the best potential properties for investment, and those properties are listed on their digital marketplace where you can invest in them. We're excited to talk with Gary about his journey, ReAlpha, and a whole lot more on the show today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Gary. Hey, Mike. Hi, Josh. Thanks so much for joining us. And really, I mean, we kind of made you run around this evening, so <laughs> appreciate you sticking with us despite the mix-up on the location. Hey, that's okay. It happens all the time. Yeah. So one of the first places we like to start, Gary, is just get a little background on yourself, your journey, kind of how you got to where you are today, maybe the key highlights in your career that really brought you to this point. I was born in India, mm -hmm. uh, a small town, uh, probably like Dublin of India kind of situation in uh, uh, south of India. I did my computer engineering there, uh, University of Mysore, and then I came to U.S. in 1991. Those days, you know, like any good programmer could come come to U.S. very easily. I was one of those early ones that came in. Uh, then, you know, I've been an entrepreneur since pretty much 97. Uh, so, you know, built all kinds of companies. This is my sixth venture I'm working on. Uh, first one, you know, I built it up to about 1,000 plus people between San Francisco Bay Area and Bangalore. 
made some good exit and then you know like went moved back to india i attempted a very large 1.2 billion dollar project there uh, failed you know failure teaches mm-hmm. uh, really good lessons we'll talk you know uh, during the course then you know in 2010 i decided i will move back to us i came back to new york area uh, went to columbia university did my masters there and then you know like uh, launched another company Uh, which we took it from 0 to 50 million in revenues in under 4 years got it listed on nasdaq once i rang the bell i said i'm going to do something else entrepreneur right so invested in a bunch of companies and then you know coming to columbus is a interesting story we will talk about it so going back creating all those companies maybe first talking about the first one 91 and 97 you were kind of taking the the typical corporate route you had your degree you came over to the united states what made you decide to take the entrepreneurial leap and when you decided to take it how did you go about being successful at it yeah a very good question my entrepreneurial journey started when i was in middle school i think when i was uh, in 5th or 6th grade my brother and i started dabbling you know entrepreneurial activities of the childhood like you know uh, we ran a newspaper route you know we did the milk route those days you know selling milk was a big thing in india so you know we did that and you know like during uh, some festivals we also used to retail crackers and you know all that kind of stuff so the entrepreneurial journey had begun very early on in my life When I came to US I was really lucky to you know get my first break you know first jobs normally define you know for a long time when I landed in LA my first you know flight out of India my my first li- flight in life out of anywhere was to LA I landed in LA I worked uh, for a year uh, with a great entrepreneur his name is Alan Deberry I worked for him I was the employee number 2 now that company has become a multi billion dollar company so I was the employee number 2 so morning 8 to 5 I used to be technically his executive assistant kind of those days you know I'm talking 91 right you know there you didn't have cell phones or you know uh, etc it was always you know somebody on the phone so I was the assistant mm-hmm. and then uh, during you know um, 5 pm to almost 2 am i was the programmer kind of so, you know it was crazy days but i in that first year i learned so much i said i'm going to be an entrepreneur so you know i kept trying a bunch of things and then 97 is when i really launched uh, becoming an entrepreneur what was that product focused on so before fintech became popularly known as fintech in those days 97 to 2005 it was still called financial services technologies so you know we were providing tech for banks and securities companies and insurance companies etc anything related to finance those were the technologies that we were building how did you notice that market opportunity so by 95 i had moved to san francisco bay area i used to work for a company those days called montgomery securities which went to become bank of america securities after bank of america bought it so i worked there So while I was there this was the really early stages of internet revolution you know mm-hmm. like uh, browsers and you know like netscape and you know those days and, right and AOL and the, AOL the loud noise every Yahoo time you logged on the internet yeah Yahoo's and all that stuff right dial up internet you yep. know? Uh, I was one of those early uh, tech geeks playing around I was you know probably the, one of the first ones to you know write a JDBC connectors and all that good stuff you know like uh, good old days that's how you know I got fascinated with tech but I was also trying to be a trader for mm-hmm. some time so i was in montgomery securities right i was on the trading floor all the time we had like hundreds of traders on the trading floor 
uh, in San Francisco. So I thought I'll become a trader. Mm-hmm. I was what, 25, 26 kind of. I wanted to be a trader. But you know, like one of the trader friends of mine, now you know, he's the CEO of a large investment bank in uh, Bay Area. He advised me, his name is Scott Kowalik. He said, Giri, you know technology well, don't bother about coming to finance, stick to tech. Mm-hmm. And that was such a great advice. And then I have remained in tech for a long time since then. And then you move on to this $1.2 billion, if I got the number right, venture over back in India. And you mentioned failing to that. Like how, how does one fail and yet come back from a $1.2 <laughs> billion venture? See, again, failures happen for, you know, like for your own reason or external reasons. So we failed not because we wanted to fail, right? Mm-hmm. The failure happened in 2007, 2008 when Lehman Brothers collapsed. Our investor for that project was Lehman Brothers. They were about to put 300 million in equity and 900 million in debt. We were five weeks away from getting that money. And then, you know, when yeah. they collapsed, we became a collateral damage. Uh, in Asian you know, societies, you know, entire India, China, Japan, Korea, et cetera, right? Your business failure is taken as your personal failure. That is the hard part. One thing I love about America is America gives you second chances and Mm -hmm. third chances, et cetera. As long as you don't do wrong stuff, right? Ethically or morally, if you don't do stuff, the society is very forgiving. And if you try big and fail, society even rewards you for that. Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, you know, like that was the biggest thing. Uh, In India, it was a public failure. So I failed in like front page kind of failure on the newspapers. Huh. So And then that failure, I would assume, impacts your ability to go and get another loan for a business or, you know, to raise money for another. Like, so how does that, I guess I'm curious about how in Asian societies, like that personal side of this and the, the failure, does that impact entrepreneurs' ability to continue after that? Because like in America, right? It's like, hey, you're not an entrepreneur unless you failed once or twice. Yeah. Right. So, you know, in in other countries, it's like, do you have to like bat a thousand basically? And and uh, very painful memories. <laughs> Sorry, we don't don't have to go there. If, if no, it's uh, it's a good question. You know, as you rightly said, in U.S., failure is treated as a lesson, and then you learn from it and scale. So, you know, like I jokingly I say, I've done a 1.2 billion dollar MBA program, kind of right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to pay the fee to you know get that kind of education. So in most Asian societies, you don't get second chances. U.S., very forgiving. I love that part of the entrepreneurial nature of this country. If you fail, as long as you work hard, you can make it again. So when I came back, I was sure because I had already tasted the you know success and failures of America, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you recall America Online, you mentioned AOL and Time merger was considered as the biggest merger, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like what, $100 billion kind of merger? And that failed. And, you know, like Steve Case went on to, you know, like build successfully other funds and stuff like that. So I knew that that's going to happen in the U.S. So, you know, when I came back, I was confident that as long as I don't lose hope, you could make it big. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like it proved that, you know, when I went back to Colombia and then, you know, as part of the Capstone project, we started working on a product evolved into something else. Four years later, lo and behold, I was ringing the bell on NASDAQ. That was the first company you'd taken public, correct? Yeah. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. 
Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So throughout that process, when you were building that capstone project, right, and that product, were you, were you always envisioning that? Or like, how did you end up getting to that point of going public? In fact, no. See, you know, like uh, in the entrepreneurial journey, one thing that I've learned is you cannot possibly put you know, all the details of a, a roadmap. Building an, a startup is like, you know, creating a map. There is no map, you know, like you will have to figure out yourself, right? Even in, when you are doing second time or third time, every time... Products would have changed, markets would have changed, customers, you know, literally everything changes every single day. So there is no map. So when I was working on the Capstone project, the product idea, uh, you are in sales. Mm -hmm. So the idea was, how do you hire the right salespeople? That was the, you know. uh, Good question. (laughs) Good question. I'd like to know the answer to that one. University of Chicago has done an interesting study. Mm -hmm. The cost of hiring a bad sales guy is $1.2 million. Yep. The cost of say, hiring, cost of training, one year, etc. If you add all that up and the damage somebody creates can be $1.2 million. And how do you avoid that? So that was the thesis of, uh, can we use technology to overcome the biases? Uh, there is an interesting bias called 14-second syndrome. Mm-hmm. When we do handshake, mm-hmm. first you know, glance, 14 seconds, your subconscious mind decides whether you want to hire a guy or girl, right? Mm -hmm. Then, you know, next half an hour to an hour, your entire interview is leading to the decision your subconscious mind has already done. So my quest was, how do I overcome that when I'm hiring? I had had hired all kinds of wrong people, made millions of dollars of Mm -hmm. wrong hires. How do you overcome that? That was the product. But, you know, like we were, when I did a lean launch methodology, you know, under Steve Lang, he came and taught us, uh, he told, you know, your idea seems interesting. Why don't you go and get 50 purchase orders? Mm-hmm. So I started you know, calling all the heads of sales. Every head of sale, like you, mentioned that it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Every head of HR said, not a good idea because, you know, like people will discriminate against, you know. Right. So I had to drop the idea, pivoted, went into SAP, et cetera, and then built the company. So that was the pivot. So it was based on a pivot. Mm-hmm. And so as you pivot, you know, I want to get to Realf and I don't want to double down on too much on, on some of these things that are further back. However, I think your, your repeated success tells me you have an ability to not only identify problems, but continue to figure out how to solve them in an entrepreneurial way. Not everybody can make that gap. So when you said, okay, this isn't going to work and the market's telling me it's not going to work, I'm going to pivot. How are you even able to find a pivot? Like, how do, Can you take me through a little bit on how you look at problems and, and, and realize whether they're worth solving or not? So you know, I will, since you, you know, brought real alpha as the example, I'll give you the real alpha example. So, you know, like one of the questions that, you know, you may want is like, why am I in Columbus? I used to be, you know, in the Bay Area or in New York area, right? I used to live in Princeton till last year. COVID, everybody's plans was disrupted. Uh, we were supposed to be, you know, my wife and I were planning to go to Santorini for our 25th wedding anniversary, etc. Everything got disrupted. And accidentally, you know, we picked Columbus mm-hmm. as a place to meet as our son was in Chicago. So, you know, we picked this location, landed here in Dublin, Ohio. And then I wanted to, you know, like build a business here. That's how I came last year. So and I'm new here in Columbus, right? So the way, you know, like you spot an opportunity is when 
I mean, it can be serendipity, right? You know, it, for various reasons, you know, you are thrown an opportunity or a challenge. What happened was when I came here, one of my friends from Princeton called. She was trying to buy a Airbnb property. That was about $400,000 kind of. If you want to buy a re- vacation rental kind of property, you have to put 25% down. So $100,000. She did not have $100,000. She called me saying, Giri, either you give me $100,000 or solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Boom, you know, I wore my entrepreneurial eyes. I said, huh, interesting problem. Let me, you know, look into it. So when I started looking deeper into the problem, I realized that, you know, like, whoa, $100,000, 65% of Americans don't have a thousand bucks for medical emergency. Mm-hmm. That is the reality of life. How will they bring in $100,000 if they have an aspiration to have a vacation rental property? That was the question that you know triggered me. Okay, let's solve that problem. And that's how uh, the Realpha idea you know, started. And then sort of keep probing on that. You identify what the problem is and you understand that there's a massive gap, but then your mind starts to probably go to total market size in terms of how many people actually want to buy a $100,000 property. But then how do you start to realize like this is a big enough problem where enough people probably want to do this, that there's a, a viable product? Do you take the MVP route and start testing the market? Yeah, a very interesting question, right? How, would you, you know, jump into an MVP or not? Steve Blank, you know, he is my mentor and teacher in Colombia. So, you know, he is considered as the lean launch guru, Eric Rice. Eric Rice was a student of uh, Steve Blank. What they proposed was what is known as customer discovery process. Don't jump into MVP, but do one more step of customer validation. So that means, you know, you talk to 50, 100 customers to see whether the problem is real and is it a, a solvable problem. The harder the problem to solve, the higher the probability of success. Everybody thinks the other way around. You know, things that, you know, like, oh, if it is easy, go build it, you know, it will happen. No, it doesn't happen. So what I did was when my friend called me with that one question, can you solve this problem? I said, okay, let me, you know, start talking. So I spoke to, you know, at least, what, 90 odd people. How do they buy Airbnb properties? I became curious. And then, you know, like now our co-founder and, uh, you know, my dear friend, Monaz, she, uh, she has done hundreds of properties herself, Right. So I asked her, hey, Manaz, you know, like, this is the problem. What do you think? She asked, Giri, you are a tech guy. Why are you asking a real estate question? I'm like, okay, if I have to buy, you know, what do I do? She said, do you even know how to buy a property? I didn't know how to react to that. I said, yeah, I go to realtor or go to a realtor or go to Zillow and then figure out whether to buy or not, right? What I did not know at that time was there is this massive wholesale real estate market. I don't know whether you guys know about this. So it's big. Every city has wholesale dealers. But you and I as retail customers, we don't have access to it. They won't, the wholesale market guys don't sell it to retail guys. So visualize a Costco kind of for buying homes. Mm-hmm. Costco, you can't go and buy a Coke can, but you know, you can buy 300 Coke cans, something like that, right? So similar analogy, they don't sell it to, you know, one Zs and two Z property buyers. If you buy 25, 50, et cetera, then you will be into the privileged club. But how many individuals can afford to do that? That is when, you know, I got more and more curious and then, you know, interviewed a lot of people, spent a few months. And then, you know, I talked to Brent Crawford of Crawford Hoing here mm-hmm. uh, locally. So I pitched to him saying that here is this idea. He said, yes, let's do it. And that's the beginning of Realpha. 
We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. So when you go about, you know, you start to focus on developing a product, do you start bringing a team together? Do you start working on it yourself? Like, how do you go about actually building this MVP? And and I, I'm assuming there's probably a lot of legal issues involved with building out what's almost like I, you know, I, the way when I read it is almost like an REIT, it's still a financial asset. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of regulation around. Yeah. So two parts of that question, right? One is, you know, how do we build the MVP part and, you know, the REIT part of it. So I'll come to the REIT later. Let's talk about, you know, the product itself, right? So as I told you, you know, like instead of jumping onto MVP, I, you know, focused very heavily on the customer discovery process. So what are the customer needs? What are the pain points? I had to understand. So, you know, like largely we narrowed down on three core customer pain points. First one is obviously that 25% down, $100,000 kind of money, right? How many people will sit, be sitting with $100,000 to invest? Not many. Second part was nobody has time and energy to buy a short-term rental property and then manage them. Somebody will call at 3 a.m. saying that my toilet is not working or, you know, door lock is not working. Those are the kind of pain points. And the third pain point is the complexity that is there about the mortgage process. Actually, get, pulling your teeth is much easier than getting a mortgage, by the way. Nobody has the time, energy, or, you know, like that process is so painful. It's just nobody wants to deal with it. So we said, can we, you know, address these three pain points? So then we what, what we did was before even we wrote first line of code, you're a software guy, I'm a software guy. The tendency is to jump into writing code. I said, no, let's, you know, like solve it on paper. So we went through the entire, you know, first few properties manually doing step by step, you know. And when we figured that out, then I said, okay, now we are going to you know, write the code. In Realpha, we did the manual MVP and then jumped into technology. And with Realpha, there's kind of really two pieces to the system, right? There's the user interface and platform that allows people to, to purchase properties and, and work through and manage their assets. But then there's also the AI on the back end that's helping you find the right properties and evaluate different properties when there's thousands of properties yeah. on sale, right? Very good you know, uh, point there, right? On artificial intelligence versus human intelligence. See, again, I've been a techie for a long time. I know, you know, in depth of, you know, what happens at the nuts and bolts level. People, you know, like want to overhype saying that AI can do everything. We haven't reached the artificial general intelligence level. We are still at the AI and we are still at the early stages. What AI can help you with is when you have thousands of properties to analyze, it can give you a smaller list. Let's say, you know, very recently we put a, you know, a very large bid for some 1,500 properties uh, of a company which is going through a lot of, you know, interesting challenges. You know, you guys know I'm a, on an NDA, so I can't disclose anything about it. So, you know, they are trying to sell thousands of properties and, you know, we bid in that process. What we did was, you know, we got a, suddenly some 7,000 odd properties data. How do you analyze 7,000 properties in three days? Humans cannot. That is where the technology will be very useful. So what we did was we have a, a product, you know, we call it as Realpha Brain. Mm -hmm. That's our AI platform. So we ran it through that. And then, you know, it gave us a much smaller version. And then we have another app called Humint. So we call it a Humint, human intelligence. Mm -hmm. So on, on top of the AI, you, you know, throw in Humint which will give you a much narrow list. That is with what, you know, investment committee will manually, you know, like mm -hmm. 
buy or not buy kind of decisions. So a combination of pure tech and human intelligence is a great combo at this point in time. Sometime in the future, I don't know, is it going to be a year or five years from today, it will become fully automated. Till that time, you know, we have to leverage humans and technology. Right. And a little bit of a sidetrack here, but you mentioned artificial general intelligence versus simple artificial intelligence. And for those of us that, that, that might not know, as far as I'm aware, artificial general intelligence is the concept of an AI that's not only... So right now we have AIs, for example, where there's a chess AI called AlphaZero that is extremely in stockfish as well that could beat any human in chess. Correct. AIs are very good at one thing right now, but an artificial general intelligence would be as smart or smarter than humans at everything, right? Yeah. And that is still years away, even though, you know, like there are experiments that are happening, you know, like multiple companies are, you know, attempting. Google bought a company called DeepMind you know, a couple of years back. That is one example. And then, you know, like uh, the technology will evolve in different ways, obviously. Quantum computing is one area, mixing with AGI. I think that will be a great place. Uh, I mean, you know, like see, even Elon Musk has been talking about, you know, fully, you know, automated driving, etc. It hasn't happened at the scale that, you know, one would have expected. 20, 25 years back when we started, I mean, you know, when I was doing my engineering some 30 years back, we all thought that, you know, by 2020, you know, like we'll all have flying cars, right? And, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, we are still, I had to drive and, you know, <laughs> come in, you know, to this uh, podcast. So I think, you know, technology is evolving in really interesting ways, but, you know, AGI hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. So when you compare it against the other options that you have out there as an individual, like Mike mentioned, like a, a real estate investment trust, why would Realpha be superior to that? Why, what, what problem does it solve for people who might consider that? So, you know, we are solving, as I told you, in three different ways, you know, from one from a down payment issue. See, you know, I truly believe the property ownership, especially the short term rental property ownership must be democratized. And we are the you know leaders in democratizing. When I say democratizing, I want to see can we allow you to invest in a you know vacation property or short term rental property, Airbnb property in Florida with a down payment as low as $2,500. How do we bring that down? Our vision is to eventually bring it down to zero. With zero down, can you, you know, get a fractional ownership of a property that you can say, hey, mom and dad, why don't you go and stay in my property? That's a matter of pride. See, millennials are investing in all kinds of digital assets, you know, whether it is crypto, NFTs, and DAOs, and, you know, Constitution DAO, you know, like the latest craze, right? But, you know, like, Real assets are also a must. And what we are saying is, while you, you know, invest in technology and advances, etc., do investments in real. That's our tagline, invest in real. So real, uh, you know, our tagline is invest in real, real people, real assets and real moments. So what we want to do is democratize that entire investment process, wherein it is as low today as $2,500, you can pick up 12 and a quarter percent of a property. That's what, you know, we have achieved so far. So it's a much more sophisticated and elaborate version of a mix between what you would get almost from a financial perspective, except more lucrative in a, in a real estate investment trust, plus the benefits of a kind of timeshare type product meshed in one. Or am I totally missing the mark on that? To a large extent, you are right. See, the difference between, I mean, you both you know talked about REIT, real estate investment trust. The difference is REIT is a blind pool of money. When you put money, 
you don't know what properties they are going to buy, etc. So you know you have no control as an investor. What we are saying is, let us reverse that. You see, using democratization word is one thing, and then make building a business model around it, right? So what we are doing is, you will get to stay in the properties that you, we are investing. So our business model is 65% of the year is when short-term rentals happen, Airbnb bookings. So we have seen, you know, Airbnb data that, you know, like when you put a property on Airbnb, the bookings happen for about 65 to 70%, 30 to 35%, it's empty. So we are building a, an algorithm almost like frequent flyer miles of an airline. So, you know, like they throw you a free seat, you know, now and then, right? So similarly, what we believe that 35% of the unoccupied part of the short-term rental property, you should go and stay. That is the difference between a REIT and our model. Mm -hmm. And so then it sounds like you divvy that 35% of time up as a timeshare amongst all of the people that have contributed to own that particular property. But what I'm curious about is like, if I want to, like, if I go on to Realpha right now and I said, Hey, I want like, do I, is there a list of properties that I can invest in? Or is it, Hey, you know, here is the, you, you, invest this much, we're going to buy a property and we'll tell you what it is later. Yeah. So that's going to come you know, next year. What we did was we took the democratization process to the next level. In March, on March 15th of this year, SEC allowed companies like us to raise up to $75 million through a process called as Regulation A, Reg A, you know, it's called, you know, popularly. So we created a fun, you know, deep fake video of Elon Musk so, you know, if you want to go, uh, go to YouTube and search for uh, Realpha channel, and then you will see Elon Musk in a bathtub kind of video. It's a fun parody video that we did, uh, wherein, you know, he explain his character explains the regulation A, how, you know, it is evolved. So we went through the SEC process. So in October, on October 15th, uh, we went live with that process. Uh, what a shock. Uh, Mike is, we have got in, investor interest. You know, I am blown away. We got investor interest from 56 countries as of today. 8,900 investors from around the world, including Mongolia. I never thought that, you know, like our campaigns will reach such level. So, you know, we are kind of overwhelmed, you know, by the response that we are seeing that, 8,900 odd investors have already, you know, come onto our platform and they want to invest. So the regulation A, the share, you know, like we have priced it at $10 a share and you, you know, come in at the company level and then we will be, you know, like next year, once we buy 100 plus properties, we will allow individual investors to invest at the property level as well. So either you invest in all properties by becoming a shareholder of the company or you come in at individual property level wherein you know four shareholders you know there we have limited to 12 and a quarter percent four members so 49 percent because 51 percent has to be held by the company otherwise nobody will finance it mm -hmm. so that is why you have two classes of uh, owners one at company level where you have access to all properties or individual properties
And if you have access to all properties, how does that look from a return standpoint over time? Like when you talk about, when you look at the individual property level, obviously you can kind of map that out at a more detailed level. You can see the usage of the property. How does that change, that dynamic change when you're just looking at the company level? So when you invest at the company level through this regulation A offering, you are going to get the benefit of all the properties that we will continue to buy, right? See this 75 million that we are raising within, you know, like, uh, next, you know, 18 months or so, we will be owning almost $1.5 billion worth of properties. And then, you know, we will, you know, continue to you know, add more and more properties without diluting this shareholder class. So you will see, you know, you know, multiplying of the benefits that, you know, keep accruing at the company level. The valuation of the company, et cetera, will, you know, hopefully go up, right? That's the, you know, uh, way, you know, I have to, you know, legally compliant way I have to, you know, uh, disclose. So what will happen is as you move up the chain, you know, as we buy more and more properties, you will see the benefit as a shareholder because the valuation of the company tend to go up. Do you have to be an accredited investor to get in at the shareholder level? That is the beauty of the Regulation A offering, right? You know, like, so it, this is under the Jobs Act mm -hmm. that got passed, you know, in 2015. So, you know, the SEC made a bunch of, you know, revolutionary changes in March of this year. This allows both accredited investors and non-accredited investors to, you know, participate mm -hmm. in this. See, otherwise, you will never have a chance to invest in a, a high-growth company right. at the ground floor level. The only choice is, you know, when the IPO. Why should only VCs and high net worth individuals and private equity guys invest in, you know, companies? Why not individuals? Mm -hmm. So uh, we have put a minimum of $1,000. With $1,000, you can be an early shareholder. And then what about growing and scaling the company in Columbus? You know, you've, you've been to these major cities and tech hubs of the world. What has it been like trying to grow the company here? Uh, very interesting. You know, like I am very impressed with the you know, quality of the talent that we are seeing, the support we are getting. And, you know, like uh, it's just amazing. On a lighter note, I think, you know, like uh, the marketing of Columbus and Ohio has to be, you know, like tweaked a little bit. The tagline of Ohio is find it here, right? It should be find IT here, information technology here, tech, you know, like, see, every industry is going through a transformation yeah. and, you know, tech. So find IT here. I like it. Find IT here. We're heading towards technology. And I think that, you know, when you see like the, the community, and I think our tech community is, is growing rapidly at the same time, right? And, I, and we're seeing people recognize Columbus as a place that, you know, is more than just a cow town, right? As we were known in, for the last 30 years. Hey everybody, Mike here. We're gonna take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. So what initiatives are you working on right now then as you guys kind of look ahead into 2022 and beyond? So we are working on some six major initiatives as we speak. One is 
further developing the artificial intelligence piece of it uh, how do we you know make it more better you know like uh, every time we throw in uh, a thousand new properties the system becomes better and better and you know uh, how do we improve the accuracy and the quality of the output that comes out of the ai that's the first part second one is we because of the, the product that we started building we observed another major area that you know like uh, we will get an opportunity so we are going to launch a product early next year so we are almost done we are testing you know with a bunch of users now so that will be our next big thing third one is you know we are working on a what we call as realpha hub this hub see one of the biggest challenges in airbnb properties is four people let's say you know book a house 50 people show up party thrash the place etc etc that's a common complaint across airbnb properties by the way a, a quick you know stat on airbnb airbnb is today operational in 220 countries in us alone 660000 homes are on airbnb right it's a big market so you know what we believe is some other uh, technologies that we can integrate can be sold to you know all the 1.8 million short term rental homes on airbnb itself uh, so you know we are working on we call it as realpha hub we may change the name at some point of time but you know next year those are the three and then there are a bunch of other what we call as skunk works kind of uh, products so who knows what about personal goals for the future like do you plan on being in columbus long term um anything else outside of the business that you really focused on hey no i came just one year back and you know like i'm in the dublin bubble part of the uh, city and mm-hmm. you know like so many things are happening i'm meeting really exciting people genuine people you know like i, I mean i have lived in new york so you know that's a different lifestyle compared to here absolutely uh, people can have great conversations i love it here so far on the personal side you know like my son is already moved to you know uh, seattle he works for microsoft and my daughter is in urbana champaign so you know we are enjoying it here that sounds great gary and i think a, a good place to pivot towards our last question of the show our last question of the show here on conquering columbus is centered around the theme of the show which is live uncomfortably and without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase about uh, for a show about entrepreneurs business owners and leaders what do you think of when you hear it how does it apply to your life and career I mean I have always lived on the edge of everything right you know like uh, I I've never had a, a you know a regular you know 9 to 5 kind of life see I believe that ikigai I don't know if you have heard of the term ikigai it's ikigai a, yeah. yeah it's I've a Japanese it. term you know like what are you passionate about what can you you know like make money off of and then you know what brings you joy right uh, creating new products and new technology is what you know is my ikigai so every year you know i will do some experiment at a personal level uh, last few months back i became a vegan to you know experiment further and so like that you have to keep experimenting see one of the things that i am fascinated about is a concept called as biohacking i don't know if you have done any mm-hmm. interviews on your podcast uh, this is a movement you know which is picking up momentum in silicon valley how do you hack your body you know so the futurist of uh, google Uh, he says that you know like our generation of people we have an opportunity to live up to 130 years mm-hmm. so if you are going to live that long you better find you know exciting stuff to do right so are we the generation which is going to mars maybe so if i get an opportunity to go to you know mars i will be the one of the 
no, probably, you know, we will fly to Mars. Would be a good trip. I'd say uh, that's a great answer, Gary. And we appreciate you taking the time to talk on the show. It's been great talking with you. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, listeners, thanks for tuning in. If you want to learn more about Realpha, check out, oh, Gary, help me out with the website. Realpha.com. Realpha.com. Very easy. And if you enjoyed that interview, you want to hear more just like it, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. Those subscriptions really do help support the show. So we appreciate it. And we'll talk to you next week.